welcome back to The Popular Show with me, James A. Smith. I'm extremely pleased that we're joined by Kenan Malik, who is an Observer columnist uh, and the writer of several books. Most recently, this one, Not So Black and White, A History of Race from White Supremacy to Identity Politics. We're thrilled you could make some time for us, Kenan, on The Popular Show. Uh, pleasure to be here on it. Uh, the, the book is is getting a lot of attention and you've been on a, a fair few uh, other podcasts uh, and, and programs discussing it. Uh, and I, I'm really pleased that we can address it too. Uh, it strikes me that after that sort of great democratizing of anti-racist feeling and concerns around 2020, we, we're now at a moment where a lot of the sort of qualifications that people wanted to make uh, about a lot of the discourse going around then, a lot of the counter-narratives and objections are finally appearing in book form and, and we're, we're finally getting uh, sort of rigorous comments of the kind that you're you're providing on it. Um, maybe I could start with the, the most sort of basic and hard question. We, we talk a lot about race and about racism today and it's possible that more people uh, are convinced that these are highly important concerns uh, than perhaps any time before. But what do you mean when you use those terms? Well, most people assume that racism emerges when members of one race uh, discriminate against members of another, and that racism is what develops when races collide, as it were. And I argue the opposite, that... Um, Intellectuals and elites began dividing the world into distinct races to explain and justify the differential treatment of certain peoples. That the ancestors of today's African Americans were not enslaved because they were black. They were deemed to be black and an inferior race to justify their, their enslavement. And there, there are kind of two aspects to that. Well, one is that um, the idea that um, race, as we understand it, is a, is a modern concept, um, and in particular, a post-Enlightenment concept, um, and that modernity in the post-Enlightenment world um, embodies the paradox of being the source both of ideas of equality and universality and uh, concepts of race and racial inequality. Um, to say that race is a modern concept is not to say that prejudices or the categorization of distinct human groups were not deeply rooted in the uh, pre-modern world. Um, on the contrary, the notions of inequality, of difference, of ideas about the subhumanity, the inferiority of different human groups were, were, were integral to the, the, the pre-modern consciousness. But paradoxically, that's why um, such prejudices were a long way from uh, racial ideas in the modern sense, um, because only in a world in which uh, the principles of social equality and a common humanity has become accepted um, can ideas of uh, racial inequality and racial difference have real meaning. And that's why the notion of race is um, uh, in modernity and in particular in the post-enlightenment world is, is necessarily different to um, the, the, the notions of race and of, uh, the notions of group differences in the pre-modern world. If I may jump in, Kenan, um, just to clarify something of the timeline of, of that for listeners. So what you're saying is that in uh, the, the classical world, the ancient world where course slavery existed and even right up to perhaps the first century of uh, the modern slave trade in the 17th century you didn't really need to justify people as being inferior in order to enslave them they were slaves and therefore they were inferior it was only when you started getting an ideology that said actually there is a sort of common humanity and that you, you shouldn't treat people um, as inferiors that you needed to create this post hoc justification. That's right. Um, you know, what may, the kinds of divisions we're talking about from um, 
you know, social divisions within societies, the division between the working class and the middle class, all those kinds of divisions, um, to up to slavery, would have been unremarkable, was unremarkable in the pre-modern world. No, nobody felt they had to justify it. It was just the way the world was. But once you develop the argument that equality is central to um, the, 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 the character of a nation, um, as, as explained in you know, the American Declaration of Independence or the French um, Declaration of the Rights of Man, that that becomes one of the foundational aspects of, of your nation, then you have to also explain why slavery exists still in, in, in this new society um, of equality, why um, all manner of, of uh, inequalities still exist. And it, yes, it's that, that justification was made necessary because from the 18th century onwards, as you say, uh, America and Britain and France and many other European nations began to define themselves by their, their attachment to equality. In practice, though, their policies denied such equality and liberty to most of the population. Um, and so race becomes a means to bridge that contradiction by insisting that certain peoples are by nature unequal and therefore not deserving of liberty and equality. It wasn't that race was invented to do that. It was just that as these societies developed, so those inequalities came to be seen as inevitable, natural, but uh, the, 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 the product of a lack of progress among certain peoples. And race becomes a means of, 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 of um, of viewing a world which is cut through, um, which has an abstract belief in, in equality, but is cut through with um, deep fissures of inequality. So if the Enlightenment um, both required and offered tools for offering a, a scientific and philosophical um, rationalization of race, uh, we could say that the end of American slavery in the late 19th century was another kind of big stopping off point where, um, where, where race as an argument, as a form of, of rhetoric and a way of organizing people had to be ramped up by elites in order to justify continued inequality. Uh, I mean, you quote W.B. Du Bois, uh, writing in the 1930s, on the race philosophy being a new and terrible thing invented to make unity between poor whites and blacks impossible. Uh, you also quote um, a, a very striking uh, uh, a bit of satire from the late 19th century, where um, a, a, a conservative satirist is sort of making a joke of the idea of a society that would enforce all of these divisions between black and white people, all of those satirical um, details would then come uh, uh, into reality uh, in the Jim Crow laws. Um, do you see that um, that as a sort of an, a, an analogous kind of moment in the history of race, or do you see that as a as a kind of um, as a turning up the volume on the logic of of race in the late nineteenth century? Well, it is through the 19th century that, that the idea of race uh, becomes um, uh, part of general social discourse. I mean, if, if you go back to the earlier, to the late 18th to early 19th century, racial thinking wasn't that deeply set in societies. Um, that's where you find the origins of ideas of race, and um, of the modern idea of race. But in terms of how society broadly looked on, um, talked about, differences. It took a while before um, racial ideas became um, the central way of viewing the world. Um, uh, you talked about Jim Crow and, and, and the imposition of Jim Crow laws. I mean, that, 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 that's a, a fascinating story, because I said before that um, race wasn't um, invented in the kind of some kind of conspiratorial way. Um, uh, it, it just became the way that people saw the world, um, uh, a world in which they had a, 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 
an abstract belief in equality, but also the social practices of inequality. But interestingly, there are cases where race was deliberately used um, to create um, uh, divisions, um, and Jim Crow was one of them. I mean, what happened in the in the late in the post Reconstruction period in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, was that um, poor whites and um, African Americans um, joined in certain, um, especially southern states, um, to create what they called fusion movements. Um, and those fusion movements won a, a series of electoral victories and pushed out the Democrats, who um, at that time were, of course, the party of first of slavery and, and then of racism. Um, and in response to that, um, the Democrats um, launched a ferocious campaign, anti-Black campaign, um, partly at the level of rhetoric um, um, that all Black men were ravenous beasts, um, rapists, and so on, um, uh, and deserve and, and nothing more than lynching. And also at the level of social organisation, um, the creation of an apartheid society in the South. And that was a deliberate move to try and break up that coalition between whites and blacks. Um, uh, and it succeeded. Um, and you can see that in, 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 in many different um, places in history um, that such movements have succeeded um, or such uh, attempts to divide um, working class movements have, have decided. And, and that, that is one of the features of race in the modern world. Martin Luther King told a very similar story in the uh, the speech he gave in the uh, in the Selma Montgomery March in 1965, the famous "Let Them Eat Jim Crow" uh, speech, where where he he does represent modern racism as a, a tool, deliberate or otherwise, to prevent interracial proletarian solidarity. Both the argument that Dr. King was making back then, the argument that you're making in this book seems very different to some of the reigning tones of anti-racist discourse today, uh, where we have Ta-Nehisi Coates, for example, uh, speculating that racism is likely to afflict black people in America until the country passes into dust, or Robin DiAngelo uh, characterising the pathologies of whiteness as foundational to the very identities of white people. So if it, it used to be racists who believed in inherent qualities and destinies uh, of groups of people dependent on their uh, ethnic makeup. Today, quite a lot of anti-racists don't seem to see racism as having been historically a political tool in the way that you describe it, but rather seem to locate uh, it in the, in the very kind of species being of the people themselves. Uh, that's right. And I think um, racism, um, one of the problems of contemporary anti-racism is that racism has come to be seen as almost natural, um, mm. as something that is um, impossible to, to eradicate. So someone like Tanisi Coates um, compares racism to a natural event, like a typhoon or an earthquake. And he says that just as um, no law can prevent an, a, 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 a or social no social movement can can stop a typhoon or a or a uh, an earthquake, nor can a law or or social movement um, eradicate racism. Uh, and that, that that that's important. That, that that line of argument is important because. We, in a sense, to understand what we now call identity politics and the web anti-racism stands today, you have to understand also the rise of what I call uh, uh, social pessimism hmm. that has developed over, over the past 40, 50 years. I mean, we think about identity politics as some, something new. In fact, there's always been, there've always been strands of identity politics within anti-racist, anti-colonial movements. Um, the Back to Africa movements in the 19th century, Garveyism, the beginning of the 20th century, Pan-Africanism, um, Negritude, and so on. 
And these strands developed, I suppose, for two broad reasons. One was they developed in response to the gap in Western societies between, as we've been talking about, an abstract belief in equality and the reality of a world built on race and colonialism. And it led many to questioning those abstract ideals themselves, that if Europe was responsible for the subjugation of half the world, um, many are. So what worth could there be in those ideas that um, uh, at best had failed to prevent that subjugation, it, at worst it provide, provided intellectual groundings? And, that, and so many argued um, that non-Europeans would have to develop their own ideas, their own beliefs, their, their own um, uh, ideals, rooted in their own, their own values, rooted in their own cultures and histories. And these became the, the these laid the ground, if you like, um, for those challenging injustice and oppression to cleave to what we now call identity politics. And they also developed out of a sense of pessimism, the view that it was impossible to challenge racism and to achieve equality within Europe or America, um, within the white world, as it were, and, and that blacks had to separate uh, in order to do that. But these movements were largely marginal um, or relatively marginal. There were the moments when they caught flame, um, like Garveyism um, after the First World War, for instance. But, uh, or Pan-Africanism around the Second World War. Um, but they were relatively marginal and they, and, they were, and they embodied deeply reactionary ideas. So someone like um, Garvey, um, like many black nationalists, opposed race mixing, what he saw as race mixing. He regarded the Ku Klux Klan as, um, in his words, better friends of the race than, than uh, any other uh, group of whites. But they were relatively marginal. It's only in a post-war world that they've become much more dominant. Um, and there are a number of reasons for this. I mean, one, one is, um, for instance, the, the way we look at culture. Culture became, in the post-Holocaust world, culture came to replace race as the, as the medium through which we understand social differences. But culture also came to be almost like a synonym for race. So we, we can't, began to see uh, cultures as fixed, bounded, as carrying the essence of a people and so on. Um, but the most important reason, I think, um, for, the, for, for the dominance of um, identitarian politics in the post-world world um, was the rise of social pessimism. The, to have the idea of a, a radical universalism, which is um, uh, uh, traced our history from the Haitian Revolution through to uh, 20th century uh, anti-colonial movements, figures like um, CLR James and, and, and so on. Um, to have a belief in radical universalism, you have to have also a belief in social change, the belief that it is possible to overcome the fissures of race and identity, to build movements of solidarity that can transform society, radically transform society. But it's that, that, that belief that has ebbed over the past half century um, uh, with the disintegration of wider social movements and radical struggles, the weakening of um, labor movement organizations to disintegration of the left. And it's led people to cling more fiercely to their own identities because there's hopes for um, social change have eroded. Many have been led to hunker down in their own separate identities. Uh, and the more one hunkers down, the more that becomes the only way to, of understanding the world. And the more one's race or identity looms ever larger in one's consciousness. And I think in a lot of our discussion about identity and identity politics, it is the, the, the significance of, of, um, of, of the disintegration of the wider radical movements, the, the, the disintegration of, of the radical universalist strand that, 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 that was so important um, from the late 18th century onwards until um, uh, the, the post-war world. Um, the, and, and the 
the, the rise of the emergence of social pessimism in a broader sense, it, all those things tend to get forgotten. We tend to look at identity politics in and of itself, um, mm. something new uh, and as something um, uh, that one can understand in its own terms rather than only in, in the broad terms of, of those broader social changes. As far as academics, activists, um, and even people working in, in NGOs and, tra- uh, and uh, charities are concerned, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not that surprising to find that pessimism uh, being such a, a, a sort of tempting feeling, especially in the kind of end of history, post-Soviet Union era. What is very striking is how quickly it was embraced uh, by the sort of wider liberal world in just the the past few years. If we think back to the election of Obama, there was a a lot of talk of a post-racial America, and Obama was applauded for saying a lot of things about black Americans that today every good liberal would know to leap on as a, a racist dog whistle when he talks about the responsibility of black fathers and so on to go from supporting that that version of um, attitude towards towards race and politics to so quickly embracing um, a, a kind of liberal afro pessimism that um, had uh, until recently only been popular among academics and, and activists. Uh, can you account for how quickly that happened, if, if indeed you agree with that um, with that sketch? Yes and no. I mean, I, mean, I, I think that, that it's, been, it, it's been a process that's been happening for a very long time. I, mean, I trace it, for instance, I'll look at um, the, the, the tension between what you'd call essentialist views of, 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 um, of, of race and uh, anti-racism and uh, universalist or, or anti-capitalist views. That, that tension has been there for a long time. So I trace it back, for instance, to have a look at uh, the position of someone like C.L.R. James, the great um, uh, Caribbean um, author, philosopher, uh, Marxist, um, uh, cricket writer. <laughs> and, and in the 1930s, he was both a Trotskyist and a Pan-Africanist. Now, that might seem um, really odd that, 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 uh, because they are um, ideologies that are very different, that um, uh, one viewing social relations primarily through uh, the lens of class, the other defining solidarity in racial terms. And James himself was, was very clear where he stood in, in the Black Jacobins, his kind of masterwork of his history of the, of, of the Haitian Revolution. He writes that the race question is subsidiary to the class question in, uh, in politics, and to think of imperialism in terms of race is disastrous. So the question is, why was he drawn to, to, to Pan-Africanism? And the point is that Pan-Africanism at that time was a much broader church than, than it is now, and it, it stitched together two distinct political outlooks. The, the essentialist, people who thought there was a, an unbreakable thread running through history, and the needs of the peoples of Africa, and the and the anti-capitalist people like James or George Padmore or or Du Bois to, um, uh, to, to a large extent, um, for whom Pan-Africanism only had meaning in the struggles against imperialism and oppression, uh, struggles that um, could as easily pit black against black as black against white, and 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 they were they were absolutely clear about that. Um, in the 1930s, the strength of working class movements and the anti-imperialist struggles um, allowed um, an intransigent universalist, anti-capitalist, anti-essentialist figure like James to live with um, those who, who had a much more essentialist view of what um, Pan-Africanism meant. Jump, jump forward um, 30 years to the 1960s and, and to black power. And you find exactly the same tension there. But here in the, in the 1960s, um, the anti-capitalist universalist tradition has become much weaker. The essentialist mm-hmm. tradition has become much stronger. So you look at something like black power in the 1960s. And again, it stitched those two 
distinct political outlooks together, the essentialist and the anti-capitalist. So the radical edge was given by organisations such as uh, the Black Panthers or figures like um, Angela Davis. Um, and the dilemma they face, the dilemma which, which was their wrestle, was that even though they rooted their worldview in a form of class politics, they also felt that racism ran so deep in American society that the possibilities of black and white solidarity were largely illusory. And that dilemma enhanced the other side of, of, of 60s black power, something we rarely talk about, which seems to be hugely important, which is its conservatism. And that conservatism was uh, revealed in, in, in two senses. I mean, one was a view of black people as a self-contained group with his own culture and values and ways of living. So someone like uh, Julius Lester, who was a, a leading figure, it, first in the civil rights movement and later in the black power movement, he wrote of the need to recognize um, those things that are uniquely ours and separate us from white people. Um, and that the uniqueness of black culture for him was its emphasis on the nonverbal. It's the experience that counts, he says, not, not what he said. And that these are kinds of claims that drew not, uh, not only drew on romantic ideas about culture, but also what are racist tropes about African-Americans as being nonverbal, as being um, mm. uh, uh, non-rational. And this is what uh, defines what it is to be, to, to be black. And then they have the second conservative theme in Black Power, which is the celebration of black capitalism. Um, uh, there was a, a, one delegate to the, to the uh, first Black Power Conference, which was held in Newark in New Jersey in 1968, just, just after riots had ripped through um, the, the, the city. Um, he, he writes that the consensus of the, of, of the conference was that was the need to transfer economic power wielded by white men in the black ghettos of America to black men. Not tear down the ghettos, not, not create decent housing and conditions, but ensure that those who controlled and profited from it were not white capitalists, but black capitalists. Um, and between the 1930s and the 1960s, anti-capitalism had become much weaker and the essentialism has become much stronger. And between the 1960s and now, that has be become even more the case, which is, um, the, which is how um, the, 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 the conservative essentialist tendencies has become the dominant view um, in, in, uh, in, in, in the way we look, um, look most people look at race and, and anti-racism. It's a consistent pattern, actually, in, in that 60s radicalism that you see a sort of a, a, a parting ways from any class-based politics in, in two directions. One, a, a sort of liberal um, anti-discrimination discourse that isn't interested in socialism or redistribution, uh, but just wants to make things kind of better for the black professional class, or in the case of second wave feminism for, for women in the workplace. On the other hand, you have the real hardcore radicals also abandoning socialist aims. So they end up in a kind of accidental conspiracy of the most conservative and the most superficially radical tendencies and all of that discourse you know you go back to the 30s and you've got Richard Wright basically saying that the black bourgeoisie and the, the poor black majority have almost no interests in common uh, and, and really it, it couldn't be more different um, when um, you make arguments like this or, or when others such as the Field Sisters uh, or Adolf Reed or, or Remy Adekoya, who, who we've just interviewed, um, argue that, that racism needs to be thought of not as this metaphysical evil, not as this thing that is kind of inherent to groups of different ethnicities interacting with each other, but rather as a political and economic uh, fact that can be negotiated and can be changed. You, you, you often get accused, I, I think, or, or people who make these kind of arguments get accused of minimizing racism. Don't you realize you, everyone's on Instagram saying that they believe in racism? You choose now to, uh, to, 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 to offer this kind of academic um, uh, 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 scrutiny of anti-racism. Um, 
maybe you could say something about uh, the, what you start the book with, your, your recollections of uh, the racism in Britain when you were young and also the experience of anti-racism that you had sure. in that, those kind of formative years. Well, I, I grew up in a very different Britain um, to the Britain of today. Um, it was when... Um, uh, racism was vicious and visceral and woven into the fabric of society in a way that it is difficult to imagine in Britain now. Um, uh, stabbings were common, firebombings were common. By the end of my teens, I was um, organising street patrols to, to protect Asian families from racist attacks. Um, and Britain is, is a very different place today. It's not that racism has disappeared, but that, that kind of in-your-face racism is thankfully... Uh, much rarer and public attitudes have, have shifted enormously when the first British social attitude survey was published in 1983 I think it was um, more than half the black population would not countenance a spouse of a, of a different race um, now by 19, 2020 nine out of ten uh, Britons um, were happy to marry someone or for their for their child to marry someone of another um, racial or ethnic group, and just 3%, if I remember right, thought someone had to be white to be truly British. So uh, the, the kinds of views that were um, deeply embedded um, in the 1980s have, has, 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 um, have largely um, become marginalised, um, and it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a huge change that, that, that I think we don't acknowledge um, often enough. And there are many reasons um, uh, for that change. I mean, struggles of minority communities themselves um, and anti-racism struggles, the generational changes, a changing view of what it is to be British and so on. But at the same time, if, if racism is very different now than it was um, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, so is anti-racism. I mean, I grew up at a time when anti-racism was much more expansive and anti-racists anti saw themselves as closely linked um, uh, to, uh, to working class struggles. I mean, many of the struggles in minority communities were largely political, not um, religious or, or cultural struggles against racial attacks, police brutality, discrimination in the workplace, deportations and so on. And the main organizations, um, in Asian communities, for instance, were, were again political, not cultural or religious, the Indian Workers Association, the Asian youth movements, and so on. And the Asian youth movements are quite interesting because um, they emerged in the late 1970s out of the ferment of struggles from within Black and Asian communities at the same time as groups such as the South All Black Sisters or the Black Panthers of the Race Today Collective. Um, and a broader organisation, such as the Anti-Nazi League, Rock Against Racism, and so on. Um, and when a the Asian youth movements call themselves Asian, it wasn't so much to distinct wasn't to distinguish themselves from um, African Caribbeans uh, as it would be today, yeah. um, but to signal a conscious break from the sectarian politics of subcontinental politics. In fact, we 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 saw ourselves as as black. I mean, I, I, I saw myself as black. I was seen as black because black was a political label, not an ethnic label. Um, um, people would laugh at me if, if I said I was black today. Um, mm. But, but uh, in the 80s, that was um, how uh, we saw ourselves and how we were seen. Um, um, because those who we now distinguish as black and Asian um, were trying to forge a a more inclusive identity, if you like, rooted not in rooted not in ethnicity but in politics, and um, while also trying to to, to highlight um, the divisive character of racism. So yes, race the idea of racism has changed hugely, and that the character of racism has changed hugely, and but so has the character and nature of anti-racism too. There's a, a a lot of focus in the book on. America, I mean, not not solely, um, and in some ways, perhaps it's it's just that uh, the American story is sufficiently gnarly and complicated that it, it it takes a lot of pages to explain it. But how do you see the relationship between 
racism in America and indeed anti-racism in America and how it lands in Europe. Sure. I mean, I make the point in the book that um, the reason I concentrate on America is not because I think what uh, happens in America has um, a huge significance for what happens in Europe in, in practical senses. I mean, the, the, the character of, of, of both racism and anti-racism is very different in Britain uh, to that in, in America. Nevertheless, because of the economic and cultural and political heft of America, what happens in America, particularly in relation to race, is taken almost um, uh, unreflectingly by anti-racists um, elsewhere in the world. I remember being in South Africa. Um, um, this must have been about five or six years ago. Um, and there was a huge um, uh, Black Lives Matter um, uh, movement, um, a march. And there weren't, it wasn't a Black Lives Matter march about police brutality in South Africa, which is far worse um, than police brutality in America, um, where, you know, black miners get shot um, for, um, uh, for, for coming out on strike. Um, it was about George Floyd. Um, yes. Uh, it was... Um, about the, the um, uh, police brutality in America. And there's a kind of certain blindness to, to, to what's going on at home, when even in South Africa, what matters more is what, what police brutality in, in, in America than police brutality at home, um, which is 100 times worse than, than in America. Um, but the reason I concentrate on America is precisely because it has become so influential in shaping anti-racism elsewhere. And so to unpick and unpack the problems of um, the way uh, American anti-racists understand race and understand anti-racism seems to me important because um, if we can do that in the case of America, it then becomes much easier to do that in the case of uh, Britain or Europe or South Africa. In sort of forgetting that legacy and the, the kind of threads of earlier generations anti-racism that you're describing, where it's about interracial solidarity and it's about finite and specific material aims. Has the left vacated, and progressives and, and liberals in general, have they vacated a sort of important field that the, the right has been able to flood into. Uh, I mean, I, I, just to take one example, um, maybe the, the, the one interesting thing Boris Johnson did as Prime Minister was uh, to get Tony Sewell to write a, a, a report into race in Britain, which um, I know you criticised it in The Observer, but it, 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 was, it was quite startling, really, to see this report commissioned from the right that was striking quite a lot of notes that I then associated with kind of minority voices in current anti-racism on the left, Adolf Reed, the Field Sisters and, and, and others, um, in saying that really people are overlooking um, the, the very crucial class dynamics that, that are very often there in what we think of as racism. Um, so, uh, yeah, do, do you feel that in, in kind of leaving it late or in not kind of promoting these kind of these kind of analyses or or in preferring that kind of social pessimism um position about an, an eternal racism has uh have we kind of left a field open well i'd say you're being too kind about the seal report um and that um um it would have been good if it had uh, mm -hmm. talked about the importance of class um um but in a sense, what it does is to individualise the problem of racism, um, um, to moralise the problem of racism, rather than see it as part of um, a broader social move, uh, structure or movement. Um, and yes, the, the, I mean, we've got to a strange place where the right seems to talk about class more than the left. But it's, you know, it's, it seems to me to be as performative as... Um, anti-racist now talking about about, about anti-racism that um the, the the right 
uh, attitude to, to race, um, uh, to, 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 to class at a time, uh, you know, after 12 years of austerity, after um, uh, the, the anti-strike laws that, that continue to be imposed, after the, the, the attempts to crush strikes, um, after the um, uh, the the the, uh, the um, removal, the the the, um, the 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 attacks on on welfare benefits and on claimants and so on. Um, it is bizarre that, that that anybody should take seriously the idea that they that um, they think of class as important. I mean, they think of class as important only in the sense that they want to. Though when people when the working class people take action as going on strike, they accuse them of, of, um, of, of betraying the nation. Um, so no, no, we shouldn't take that seriously at all. But on the left, we, we, we need to take class seriously um, and in relation to the question of race. Um, you know, it, it, when you say this, people often accuse you of, of being um, uh, class reductionist. Well, it seems to me that, you know, when the majority of most minority communities are working class to ignore class in, in discussing race um, is, 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 is maybe useful for middle class um, minorities, but it is um, to betray the interests of, of, of working class um, uh, minority communities. And so, um, yes, class is hugely important. It, it also puts us in a, a slightly ridiculous position when, in 2020, Trump massively increased his support among ethnic minorities, including black men and women. And having um, insisted on this race reductionist frame for understanding uh, the politics of the period, uh, people on the left were stuck saying, well, white supremacy isn't limited to white people. Uh, and uh, and so there's a kind of, you know, racial self-loathing going on here. Uh, that that um, what, what was the phrase that was used? Um, multi-ethnic whiteness, you know, if... Multicultural whiteness, yeah. Multicultural whiteness, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, I, I mean, just this, this kind of topsy-turvy like ringing of words to mean almost their, yeah. their opposite is symptomatic, I think. Yeah, there's a story I tell in, in, in the book about a strike, sanitation workers strike in, in New Orleans. Great. Which I think brings out a lot of the problems in the way we look at race and class. Um, and the way, I suppose, that the anti-racism or the struggle against racism has become um, elided with the building of racial solidarity. Um, which, which are two very different things. Um, um, so, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement talks about a global uh, black family, um, and there is no such thing. Um, it's a confected unity which serves only to, to uh, obscure divisions within black communities and, and makes the creation of solidarity across racial lines uh, that much more difficult. So this... Um, Sanitation workers strike. Well, in May 2020, sanitation workers in New Orleans went on strike um, uh, because of poverty wages, the lack of safety equipment during uh, the COVID pandemic, the refusal to recognise the unions and so on. Virtually all the workers on strike were black, but so were the employers because New Orleans had outsourced sanitation work to a black-owned company as part of the city's um, uh, anti-racist strike. But Black Lives Matter meant something very different to the two sides of the picket line. Um, that, you know, black exploitation did not, does not end just because um, uh, the company is black. Working-class exploitation does not end um, because the company is black. And black businessmen, um, businesswomen are no more amenable to the demands of black workers than white um, uh, uh, businessmen or businesswomen are. So the sanitation workers came out on strike um, three weeks before George Floyd was murdered. Um, the murder that, that kind of launched a, a global um, movement behind the banner of Black Lives Matter. They remained on strike throughout that summer um, uh, when the question of race and 
and, and, and the treatment of black people were, was at the forefront of global consciousness. And yet they were forced back to work that autumn and having won virtually none of their, 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 their demands. The black employers won, the black workers lost. And it's a reminder that to assume that there exists a common set of interests or identity that binds together black people um, is to reinforce the power of the black elites and to diminish the voices of, of black workers. And it's to conflate, as I said, the, the necessity of challenging racism with the building of racial solidarity. The, the, the two are not the same. In fact, the second actually makes it more difficult to achieve the first. I think we're at a moment where quite a lot of the left are willing to listen to these arguments, maybe more than they were a few years ago, uh, and perhaps um, perhaps it's 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 part of the sort of the dynamic that the um, what seemed like radical and avant-garde ideas uh, around about 2016 have now been popularized and adopted by. Um, you know, every standard equality and diversity training uh, 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 and so on. Um, so, I don't know, the ideas have become a little bit more cringe and could be seen a little bit more clearly. At the same time, that has coincided with um, a, a new cultural turn on the right. It's no longer uh, Trump bringing back jobs to America. It's no longer Brexit you know, getting the 52 million back from the EU for the NHS. It's now wall-to-wall anti-wokeness. And so it, there's a way that I think a lot of people on the left are sort of now nervous to make what they now perceive as necessary criticisms of identity politics because the right has now seized on them in such a, a, a kind of determined way. Strategically, how do you want people to respond at a time when um, the, the the kind of elite, um, the the liberal part of the elite, is now sort of paid up, identitarians, while Tory ministers are attending this national conservatism conference where everything is about um, uh, anti wokeness. Uh, how are we supposed to negotiate that that uh, those two things? Well, I think in in many ways that. that... That, that kind of dilemma has always you know, been there and, and not just on the question of race or wokeness. The, the fact that um, uh, you can look at it on, on a whole host of different issues. We've talked about class before, um, we can talk about it in relation to free speech and so on, but that, that, um, the, uh, the, vacation, the, the left vacating a particular uh, uh, place allows the right then to... Um, uh, to, to, to uh, Come in and, and claim it for itself in a in a uh, even even though we, we recognise that um, that their that, that their politics um, is not um, is in fact the, the opposite of what we need um, in relation to to, to um, working class betterment or, 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 or to fight racism. I mean, I've long been critical of ideas that that are called woke today. You know, critical of the politics of identity. Or, the concept of white privilege, of um, the reducing equality to diversity, and so on. But it does seem to me that that the kind of anti-wokeness that you, you're talking about is often worse than what it is criticizing. It's become woke has become a description of almost anything of which the right disapproves. So you push back against the uh, Rwanda deportation scheme, that's woke. Um, historian um, investigates links with slavery. That's woke. You deride GB News. That's woke, and so on. Yeah. Um, and dismissing is something as woke has become a means of marking out territory, than engaging any kind of meaningful debate. Or it's a, it's a way of signalling one's um, a political tribe. I, su I suppose. Yeah. Not it? not to mention that it, it has a lot of the same emotional register that so-called wokeness has as well. A, a certain kind of joyless, um, you know, lack of nuance or lack of context, uh, a, a fierce policing of in-groups, um, a, uh, a, a sort of paranoid 
attention to signals and dog whistles is this secretly part of gender ideology or critical race theory or, or whatever uh, we're in a moment where the right who you know might have been evil but at least they were funny quite recently uh, are, are currently as joyless and uh, and paranoid as the the stereotype of whatever the the blue-haired anti-racist feminist that they're invoking yeah i mean i mean i, th I think in america especially um anti-wokeness has become a deeply regressive the state imposition of acceptable speech for instance of acceptable reading and so on and, and, it, and it's and um it is necessary both to defend um you know, or both to criticise um, um, what I'd call identity politics. I don't like the term woke because it's just become meaningless, but what I'd call identity politics, and to tackle and challenge um, the right um, uh, on, on its anti-wokeness. It seems to me that both wokeness and anti-wokeness are products of the unstitching hill politics, of the um, tearing of the, of, of the old political map, the polarisation of politics and uh, around perceptions of identity and the way that identity has become the medium through which um, politics is pursued. Um, and we can see this, I suppose, most um, clearly if we go back to one of the issues that we've been talking about, which is that of identity politics and, and especially the rise of white identity. Um, you know, white identity, in a sense, is the other side, the breakdown of the radical universalist tradition and the triumph of essentialist notions of identity and it's become a means of rebranding racism um in identitarian terms so i mean over the past 40 years um we know that we've had the the marginalization of the working class and that's created a uh, in section to the electorate a sense of anger and disaffection which quite rightly and which which um, in, in, in a different context, if, if the left um, was different, that um, it, it is very important. It's just that the, the, that disaffection has become to be shaped largely by the right than by the left because of where, where the left is. The, the mar that marginalization has been largely been the product of economic, social, political changes. The, atomization of society, the, the growth of inequality, the erosion of trade union power, the, the transformation of social democratic parties away from their uh, traditional working class constituencies and so on. But even though it's a, it's a, it's the product of, of economic or social or political changes, many have come to see it as a cultural loss um, because the very decline of the political and economic power of of, of the working class has helped obscure the, the economic and political roots of social problems. And as culture has become um, the, 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 the uh, means, the medium through which social issues are refracted. So many within the working class have come to see their, their problems also in cultural terms. They have come to um, uh, turn to the language of identity to um, uh, express their discontent and as the language, you know, the language of class has given way to the language of culture, and class has come to be seen not as a political, but as a cultural, even racial attribute. You know, we think about minorities as belonging to classless communities, and class becomes something that's applied primarily to to the white population, uh, and so we have, you know. Uh, a notion such as the white working class in which the whiteness seems more important than, than the class location. Um, and all this has opened the way for um, to the identity pop, pop movements of the far right, which link a, a, a reactionary politics of identity rooted in hostility to migrants and Muslims, to economic and social policies that once were a staple of the left, the opposition to, to, to austerity, defense of jobs, support for the welfare state, uh, and so on. And so it's a kind of almost like a, a new kind of mass politics, the refashioning of the original reactionary idea of the politics of identity for, 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 for a new age. And at the same time, you know, the many far-right tropes, such as 
you know, the great replacement, the conspiracy theory about how the elites are replacing indigenous uh, Europeans and and Americans um, with with immigrants for, uh, for 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 their own sordid ends, uh, or the, um, uh, the 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 idea of um, the, 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 we need to resist the the, 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 uh, the taking over of the European homeland. Um, these have all become common currency within mainstream conservative circles. Uh, and I'm not talking about you know, the Trumps of this world. I'm talking about mainstream conservative circles. So um, a figure like Douglas Murray mm -hmm. is pro possibly the, you know, one of the most important um, conservative voices in this country, um, associate editor and spectator. And not just in this country, he's, he's got a um, huge following um, uh, elsewhere too. Um, you know, he talks about London as having become a foreign country because white Britons are, are in a minority in and, and that the peoples of Europe uh, will soon have lost, in his words, um, the only place we had in the world to call home which might be a strange way of looking at the past uh, 400 years of, of colonialism and so on. But, yeah. um, or someone like Lionel Schreiber, the, the novelist, the, the British-based American novelist, who, um, who also worries about white decline and, and that um, you know, white Europeans are being forced out of their, their homes and being able to, they're surrendering their territory, her words, um, without a shot being fired. I mean, the irony in, in all this, going back to this thing about anti-wokeness, is that people like Murray and Schreiber and many others like them are fierce critics of identity politics, except when their identity happens to be white and that problem is, is that of white decline, as they see it. And so what's happened is that the mainstreaming of identity politics by the left has allowed the conservatives to give racism a new legitimacy by normalizing white identity, and um, while at the same time criticizing the very politics um, which they are embracing. Yeah, I, I mean that's a, that's a really good example of the way that for all the the complaints and paranoia about so-called populism in recent years, that the problem with the right, as far as I'm concerned, is it hasn't been populist enough. It, it comes on stage and clears its throat, addressing the people as a populist, and then immediately turns into a prefect dividing everybody into these little boxes. I mean, D Douglas Murray, the, the idea that he's any kind of populist when he's absolutely committed to dividing the people by IQ, by sociability and by uh, uh, skin colour is just, is just preposterous. Um, the, the, the history that you tell in the book of racism being deployed at different times in different ways in order to divide people, well, that perfectly describes um, the, the the politics of uh, a figure like Douglas Murray. Um, I, I, I didn't say that, that I was going to bring this up, but I, I, I'm minded to if, if, uh, if, if you're happy. Um, can we talk about anti-Semitism? Uh, you, you give a, a very valuable sort of origin story for the particular modern form that anti-Semitism has, take, has taken since the 18th century. It's also got a, a kind of a, a story of a sort of change in its nature around the Enlightenment. Um, and you also comment on, on left anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism among um, liberation movements, the pro-Palestinian uh, movement as well. I, I felt like, and I, I, I wonder if, if this just wasn't something you wanted to get into, but I, my own feeling is that... Um, as, as much as it, it, it's bad when some loon starts carrying a picture of Jesus around at a, 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 a Palestinian um, uh, rally, for me, the, the most politically significant form that a mainstreaming of identity politics has taken is actually in anti-anti-Semitism. I mean, for, for all that we might want to critique certain excesses and, and certain contradictions of anti-racism when, when it pertains to black politics. It, it's only in anti-anti-Semitism that we see all of those same tools, a centralization of um, a, an ethnic 
group and its politics and its material interests, guilt by association, a, a kind of culturalization of racism, divorced from um, material circumstances and so on. It's only in anti-anti-Semitism that we see that really being used as a very, very powerful tool in politics indeed. If we look just at, at British politics today, um, you can have a sitting mayor removed from his candidacy for refusing to denounce a filmmaker that he's appeared alongside. You can have um, long-standing uh, former cabinet ministers, former leader of the Labour Party, the first black woman MP, uh, kicked out of the party, not on the basis of, no one's saying they said something racist themselves, but on the basis of refusing to um, even discuss the topic according to the correct codes. So I, I sort of put that to you that um, maybe a, an, there could be an imagined appendix to the book where the story of how anti-Semitism has played out over the past few years it has a, a, to me, a very clear relationship to the slightly tragic narrative of, of the uses of anti-racism that you describe. Well, I wouldn't want to, to defend someone like um, uh, Diane Abbott, who you talked about, um, the Labour MP, uh, for her uh, arguments about uh, about the Holocaust. Really. Just quickly, I mean, I mean, but there's a there's a difference between being wrong. There's a difference between being a fool, and on the one hand, uh, and deserving to be to have your apology dismissed and to be kicked out of a party, a party that's full of people who could say what they like about Muslims, incidentally. Um. I, I agree. I, I agree that there is a distinction. I, I'm, all, all I'm saying is we, we have to be careful where where we stand on the, on on the left in terms of um, anti uh, and uh, not not just anti-Semitism, but more broadly um, on questions of race and and, and the the, prob the the point I made in relation to to Diane Abbott is, is it's kind of it's a broader issue, which is that if you look at race um, in terms of whiteness which is what has happened, then you tend to ignore um, discrimination or um, uh, bigotry against people who you regard as white and privileged. Um, and and it, it is the case that um, um, often on the left, there is not anti-Semitism, but a blindness to anti-Semitism um, because of the view of race uh, because of the race in terms of whiteness and, and, and of Jews as, 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 as white and privileged. Having said that, I, I, I fully accept that at the same time, um, anti-Semitism has, be has, has become a weapon to be used against um, uh, political opponents. It's not, not just anti-Semitism, it's kind of much wider set of tools, if you like. Um, but again, it's one of those one of those um, issues where we both need to recognise the way that anti-Semitism can be used as a tool, and to recognise that um, the way that the left understands race and racism leads it often to be blind about anti-Semitism. Yeah, I, I'd just add to that that um, there's a there's a, an amazing lack of realisation. Uh, slightly different point, but related, that um, you, you, you have today a, a left that will fully embrace the Black Lives Matter analysis, will fully embrace a liberal identity politics uh, standpoint, epistemology, guilt by association, et cetera, et cetera, without recognizing that in many cases that has been just used as a playbook against them. There's a, there's a, there's a funny naivety there, and and I, I think that you know for listeners who take a stronger view than the one that that, that we particularly exhibited here um, about the 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 use of anti-Semitism against the left, it, it, any any critique of that is going to have to start with a, a self-critique of the the rather incoherent kinds of anti-racism that, that the left has embraced and, and which you describe in the book, Kenan. Uh, indeed, yeah. I mean, I, I, th I think that we can't understand either um, the, the character of anti-Semitism or the um, 
the the the, uh, the way that many on the left look at anti-Semitism um, without understanding that kind of history of, of race and racism over the past 150 years. So Not So Black and White is available from Hearst Publishers, uh, and it's a, a very, very rich book and, and, and full of detail and, and, and quotation that uh, I know I'm going to be going back to for a long time. Uh, Kenna Malik, we can't thank you enough for uh, talking to us on The Popular Show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. <laughs>